Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Joanna Fortune joins us once again. Good afternoon, Joanna. Good afternoon. Uh, here's your first question. My five-year-old is petrified of the dark. He won't go anywhere in the house if the lights are off, even during the day. I've left steps at doors for him so he can be in control of turning the lights on. We've spent time playing in all the rooms in the house so he is familiar, but I'm having to go with him everywhere in the house to show him there is nothing scary. He makes a huge drama if he has to go anywhere by himself and there is a full-on meltdown if he's left on his own, especially at bedtime. It can be seriously frustrating. We're being very patient, but it's really starting to affect sleep in the house for us and his two-year-old sister as he wakes up screaming and won't stay in his own bed or go back to sleep. Our biggest issue coming up as we've held off on moving him into another room to make way for our office space, uh, as I just don't think he is ready. Any tips to help us overcome his fear of the dark and anxiety of being on his own? Ah, the poor little guy. Yeah, because this is more than a fear of the dark. I always think, you know, fear of the dark tends to be, to really spike around the age when children develop very rich imaginations because they can conjure up all kinds of things that will exist in the dark. And, you know, while they have that rich imagination, they still struggle to distinguish fantasy from reality. So if I can imagine it, it's real. Mm. You know, so we tend to see a lot of fear that which basically is from three years old up for a number of years. I, like I would often say, look, fear in general is a normal, albeit unpleasant. I don't want to kind of say it's normal, therefore it's nothing. It's something, yeah. but it is quite a normal part of life. You know, we all have hesitations and worries and fears and they tend to be at their most pronounced when we're faced with having to try something new, a new situation, a new environment, a new task, which is basically every day for children. They have something new going on, especially at this age. So fear in early childhood is quite a normal thing. And of course, nighttime is when we process a lot of our day experiences and the new challenges. So it's not unusual fear of the dark, fear of nighttime in children this age, just to say that. I do think, though, that there's more than just fear of the dark here because you're talking about he won't go anywhere in the house if the lights are off even during the day. Now, unless you live in a cave, you know, that's not about the dark. That's about being removed or a distance from or feeling pulled away from you. Now, he's five years old, so he's either done a bit of school or he's starting big school any day now. And I'm wondering how he coped with the separation going into preschool, you know, being pulled away from parents for a period of time. Mm. And just thinking about that and has there been any significant life events or changes in his life and always think about what would be significant through the eyes and mind of a five-year-old child. We might be quick to go, oh sure, look, that was nothing. But it could be really something for him. I'd also say to you that Reflect on his TV and screen use, okay? What is, and I'm not saying that's the cause of it, just reflect on it to get some understanding. What is he watching? How much of it is he watching? And at what time of the day is he watching it? Because you'd be amazed the little themes that are in children's cartoons about vampires and monsters sure, and yeah. things like that that are, you know, all lovely and colourful and jolly and they're good monsters, but it's still monsters and it's putting that notion into my head. And if he's watching, you know, an, a lot of that or if he's watching it very close to bedtime, he will carry some of that 
upstairs into the dark mm-hmm. into his bed when his overactive yeah. little imagination is on fire. Also think about what bedtime stories you're reading. Same rules apply the- thematically. Who are the characters? What are they up to? What kind of fears are in the books because often in books there is something the character has to overcome or master. Just think about things like that but ultimately be respectful of the fear. Don't minimise it or dismiss it because I hear that you're saying look you've you've been really understanding but I'm also hearing in this letter frustration, exhaustion, fatigue. Mm. So if I can hear it so can he. Um, Try not to minimise it in terms of there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, Sure there's nothing in the dark. Monsters aren't real. Try not to over rush to that because it doesn't reassure children who have fears. It just tells them not to bring their fears to you. So then they hold on to them and they get bigger instead. Try to empathise more. Talk about fear. Talk about what it is. Emphasise that it's something he can master and that you will be there to help him get on top of it. Be available physically and emotionally. You know, if that means getting out of your bed and going into him and soothing him and soothing him. That's really what I'm suggesting you do is that you attend to what's underneath this fear, which is the bubbling anxiety that is more than about the dark. Play with, you can do things like if any other parent is listening and saying, look, ours is exclusively a fear of the dark. One of the ways you can do that is to play in the dark actually sit there in a dark room and play a bit and make it fun and make it creative and imaginative. Play with shadows by getting a torch and making Mm. shadows and showing that there's nothing to be scared of. If you're checking wardrobes and under the beds, try not to use language of no, no monsters there. No, no spooks under the bed because while you're doing a reassurance, you're also giving some kind of credence to the existence of those things. Mm -hmm. Instead, say, open the wardrobe and say, just clothes and hair, just clothes and socks. All I see are clothes or coats, whatever it is, and talk about what is in the wardrobe rather than what's not. You could do a little sleep well spray to kind of ma- a magic spray with water and a bit of lavender in it or some kind of a scented oil. Spritz it round and, you know, be supremely confident this is always going to guarantee a great night's sleep and you'll be super safe in your bed. You have to be really confident to sell that. Hang up a dream catcher. Consider a nightlight. I say consider a nightlight and it's not the first thing I say because they can create shadows. Yeah, that's So true. just be yeah. really aware of that. They can either help or seriously hinder the situation. But I think you're at a place where you'll try anything. If you're listening and going, tick, 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 we have done all of that. I would be saying to you, it might be worth consulting with a child psychotherapist, a play-based therapist who will be able to give him a space to work out another way of expressing what's underpinning those fears. But the fear itself, fear of dark children having that is quite normal. The fact that he can't be anywhere in the house on his own, that's jarring with me a little. Yeah, it seems to be quite acute, all right. Uh, right, uh, next one. <laughs> this will chime with people. Uh, we're trying to instill manners in our six-year-old son, but every time I hear myself saying, say please, I cringe <laughs> because I sound like my own mother when I was small. I feel like I spend my entire day reminding him to say please and thank you. Is there a way we can teach him how to behave that more naturally integrates into our routine? I mean, I hear this is such a common question about the manners and also hearing your mother pop out of your mouth. Well, I can also hear, I can also hear is like, you know, uh, uh, they had a play date with little Tommy. He was full of please and thank you. And there's always that constant comparison. There is. And our children can be super polite in other people's houses, by the way, and very relaxed about that in our own. So don't think you're raising somebody devoid of manners. But when you think about it, the whole point of good manners and the please and thank yous is to increase harmony. Okay, it's Mm. to increase us getting along and enjoying each other and having fun and more friendships and stronger connections. It's not supposed to be a platform for scolding and discipline. 
Mm. Like it's, I mean, it often is, but just, you know, when we think, well, what's the point of it? The point of it is about harmony. So I'm going to suggest that you actually take a step back and come at it in another way and play with it. Always go back to basics and play is the language, especially at this age that we're going to be using and how you play with manners and taking your behavioral cues from the adult in charge are activities like mother, may I? You know, I have to tell you to do something, you know, 10 jumping jacks and you Mm. say, well, mother, may I? And I'll say, yes, you may and you can do it. Or I might say, no, you may not. And then you can't do it. But you have to be told to do something, ask permission, wait for the response and then act. And it slows down that impulsivity with more impulsive kids. But it also helps to do as you're told without you saying do as you're told. Simon says is a similar one. They're nice ways of doing it. Um, I also think, though, you could take it a step further because he's six and still in that kind of stage three developmental play of role play and actually role play out having a dinner party and go all out on this, like put your coat on and get outside and knock on the door and he's going to open the door and he's going to make eye contact and smile and welcome you bring you in, take your coat, put it away, ask you, do you want a drink? Sit and make chat with you, have a little snack together and you're role playing a a dinner party. But actually, it's including all of those pro-social skills that manners are about. Mm. But again, you haven't had to say, make eye contact, smile, say please and thank you. And on the please and thank you thing, it's something we often tell our children to do and say. And we forget that we can do it too, even if it is, please don't run over my foot with your train. Thank you for not running over my foot with yes, your train. Yes, if they hear us, so that's true. You have, yeah. So even when we're saying don't do this or stop it or will you get this, that we add in pleases and thank yous ourselves because that way it's just something that we do and it isn't this mm. big fanfare. I think you could also play at compliments. You know, let's all stand in a circle and give the person to your right, to your left, a compliment. Do it both ways in the circle so everybody gives and receives a compliment from each other. And you can get, look, you can buy things like... um social skills balls. They're just like a a light ball and there's little things and when you toss it over and back to each other, whatever way your right thumb lands, it'll say, you know, make eye contact with the person opposite you, give the person on your right a compliment, um, say three things that make you laugh. Different social skills are on it. You can equally make one by getting, you've just about got time, um, a beach ball and blowing it up because they're light Mm. and you could write things all over it with a a Sharpie pen and just pass that back and forth and put on lots of kind of say please and thank you when you ask for something. Lots of social skills on that. So I think there's lots of creative ways to be playful. Focusing on the whole point of manners is about increasing harmony and the best, quickest route to get to that is playful connection. Uh, Mick says just don't give them what they want if they don't say please. Yeah, Mick, I mean, to some extent, but he's six, so he's going to go out there and get a lot of what he wants or needs himself anyway. And I think this is about more than just an exchange of I want this, say, please, now you can have it. I think manners Mm. are broader than just that. Mm. But I mean, you could do that, but I don't know what it's teaching. That's the only thing. If you want him to really integrate manners as a part of his social engagement skill set, Yes, this is a, yeah. a more kind of sustainable way of doing it. Yeah, this, I suppose is a more sense of what it means rather and than it takes an you away from that of, correcting yeah. behaviour place and puts you in a more connected place. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, uh, somebody else is texted in to say, with regard to manners, people often ask how we got our three-year-old to have such good manners. All I can say is that she says what she hears. Her father and I always say, "Please, mm-hmm. thank you, excuse me, etc." And she simply copies us. Yeah, and that's probably. But that's That's how the three-year-old, four-year-olds, that's how all of our children learn everything is mirroring. Yeah.
Uh, Colm says uh, about the uh, poor little fella who's terrified of the dark. When we were kids, myself and my sister had been afraid of the dark. And then we were given a gift at Christmas of some small torches. By about mm. six months later... We would only play hide-and-seek in the dark. Mm. Uh, those are now some of my most treasured memories. Amazing how a reframing of it totally changed our Absolutely. attitudes. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes it exciting instead of scary. It can push mm. it over that line. And you can get these lovely little... It's like a torch now that that person has set it. And you get a story disc that goes in it and you can spin it. And it puts little images of mm. like bunnies or bears and they're doing something. And you make up the story. But it really only works in the dark because it has to cast the image through yes. the torch on yeah. it. So it makes the dark a, a key part of the play. Yeah, and kids really enjoy a, a good torch. Uh, you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We do have to take a break. More questions uh, coming up afterwards, including should I share with my kids that they were conceived from a donor? 53106 is our text number. That will cost you 30 cents. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Joanna Fortune uh, is still with us. Uh, here's our next question. Are, are, on telling children about where babies are made, our two uh, girls were conceived by donor sperm. They're now eight and six, and I always tell them the truth, but they're not able to process it really. I also have to navigate my husband's pride and sensitivity. Any advice? Or is there any literature that is specifically for this type of conception? I mean, there is literature for specifically. I mean, there's literature and books for everything, everything. like yes. everything. I would just say that, you know, when it's something so specific as this, make sure that you do some research, read it yourself before you crack that book open and sit with your kids for the first time, because it might not be the language or narrative that you want to use or you feel represents your situation. And this, you know, this maybe this question came in off the back of we had a question last week about where babies come from and having that conversation. And I mentioned a book that I find now it's detailed, guys. So, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, you're going into the whole story with this one, but it's called Making a Baby and it's by Rachel Greener and Claire Owen and it's an inclusive guide to how babies are made. So every kind of family formation that you can think of is included in this and that's what I really like. It's also extremely detailed and honest. I I just want to emphasise it's extremely detailed. Mm. So, you know, read it first yourself. But there is a little reference in that that, you know, Sometimes babies are made this way and sometimes they're made with the help of a lab who's going to mix this and this and this can come from somebody who's helping us have a baby or ourselves. So there is a little piece in that. I tend to with this and I've had this conversation with families before and what I'll give you what I would say. And then when you're listening, just think how much of this really resonates with you and then practice and develop your own narrative to share. I would tend to say there are three things needed to make a baby. We need a womb, we need an egg and we need sperm and daddy and I had two of the three things Mm. and we were missing one. So a special person called a donor gave us that piece that we were missing. They just gave us some cells and we mixed that with what we had and we were able to have you and then I grew you and we gave birth to you and we were so excited to meet you. That is an honest story. Yeah. And you haven't opened up too much kind of, well, what what are you talking about? Too much kind of technical language, but you are being open and honest. And as your girls continue to grow, they have a base that they can come back to you and say, explain to me a bit more about donors. And then you can get into, you know, a donor, someone who chooses to give some of their own cells, maybe their sperm or their egg to help others have a baby. Again, that's honest and you're not flooding me with technical detail. Mm. But you can grow that story up as I do. I just am always a fan of being open and honest, stay factual. Remember, you know, that the donor gave you cells. They did not give you a baby because, you know, you're not getting into this whole there is a someone else out there for you to meet yeah. because I don't know the circumstance. It might not be an open 
donor situation. It might be closed donor. So that, you know, this is about how you and daddy made your family and that's the, the way you frame the story. And if that's something you're comfortable with, develop a couple of sentences about that along those lines. Sit and talk over and back to each other so it's fluent, it's comfortable and then bring it to the girls. Yeah. If the, though, I mean, in, in, in the spirit of they ask you a question, you answer the question yeah. uh, uh, rather than giving them, you know, and here's some, you know, here's some literature beside that that you can read up. If they just ask where, how babies are made, do you have to go into the do, uh, the donor part at that stage if they just answer, if they want an answer to the basic question? Well, you can talk, well, you see, you'll still mention it because babies are made in lots of different ways and the way you made them Yes. It's yeah. not the way you're going to be telling yeah. them if you stick to one version of that. But I mean, I would be, I always take the policy if they ask you a question, answer it. But only answer the question you've been asked. Yeah. Because yeah. otherwise you go, oh, here it comes. I've been waiting for this. And you end up flooding them with detail that they're looking at you wide eyed going, what are you talking about? That's not what I asked <laughs> yes. you at all. So I prefer give a little, see how it sits. And you can always come back and they know they can come back to you and expand and detail that story more as they grow. Yeah, the uh, yeah, because it's interesting that probably I think a lot of parents have a certain anxiety about they're going to have to have this conversation. And then Absolutely. and then their six year old asks the question <laughs> and then they answered the question and that wasn't what the six year old was asking them at all. <laughs> what are you talking and it's about? Com- it's completely yeah. gone over their head. Oh, totally. I wanted to know what hospital. I, well, I don't want to know any of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think also, you know, if your child is a particularly inquisitive child, let's say, who mm. loves the science of what you're giving mm. them, it's like, interesting, tell me more. If you've run out of road and you've gotten to the stage of the story you'd prepped and you now don't don't have any further prep, it is okay to hit the pause button and say, you've got lots of great questions. I need a little time to think about those answers. How about we talk about it again? Mm. Whenever. Yeah. And you d- because otherwise you're going to be playing catch up with yourself. And this is a conversation you want to be comfortable, competent and confident in. Yeah, uh, indeed. Uh, somebody just texted in, what age should you be telling kids about where babies come from? As soon as they ask you, but I think, you know, toddlers are curious. A two and three year old will ask you some questions. That mm. doesn't mean you go, deep breath now, here we go, kid. <laughs> but it does mean, though, is you give them a little bit of information and you grow it up. Um, I think it's something as parents that we need to be a step ahead of. You know, make sure you've got some of those books. Again, mm. there are books, you yeah. know, but make sure you've got a few of them and that it's a narrative that you're comfortable with before the question comes. Yeah. My wife and I have a nine-month-old daughter. I've recently noticed that my in-laws, my daughter's grandparents, often kiss her on the lips when they're saying goodbye. I never do this and I'm her father. It seems a little unusual to me and it makes me somewhat uncomfortable. I'm just not sure if this is okay or not. Can you advise? This is so interesting because you might remember, I think I have no concept of time anymore. Maybe it was last year or the year before, but uh, David Beckham was in the news for a photo of him kissing his daughter on the mouth and it was all over the news and Mm. social media and everything and it was a big furore about it. Really what this comes down to is a personal choice and a personal issue. So when you say you're not sure if it is or isn't okay, if you're asking me in a neutral, generalised way, I'm going to tell you it is okay unless you're not okay with it. Yeah. You know, that's that is unfortunately the the answer. It's not inappropriate, you know, to use that word. Um, 
but that doesn't mean that you feel comfortable with it. So my like generally, look, we'd advise and anyone would advise not to kiss a very young baby on the mouth, you know, weeks old, even up to six months old because of the risk of the cold sore virus yeah, or, yeah. you know, being passed. Um, but, you know, at nine months old, you've got a more robust baby and there isn't a risk in that way. This is about comfort or there certainly isn't the same degree of risk. So reflect on what you're uncomfortable about specifically. If you're afraid of germs, hygiene, cold sore virus, okay, say that, Mm. you know, own that and say, look, actually, I don't think it's very hygienic to kiss for adults to kiss children on the mouth. It's our preference that we do. And there's lots of things you can do. Like I always think, you know, when it comes to playing with a baby, if you toes and nose them every day, you're playing with them. And that means, you know, you count their little piggy toes, you this little piggy, you eat the little piggies and you rub your nose over Mm. and back against their nose or you put your nose to theirs and you make a beep noise. If you toes and nose them, you're promoting gentle, safe touch, close physical proximity. You're doing all of the stuff that a nice kiss will convey as well. I love you. You are loved. You are lovable. So there are lots of ways that you can do this. And, you know, I mean, to borrow like the little Daniel Tiger books that are out there, and I know that's a cartoon as well. They always do Uggamuggas, which again is rubbing Mm. your nose. Lots of ways you can do it. Um, So I think, you know, discuss with your wife because they're her parents. Um, Be honest about how you're feeling and come up with positive, playful alternatives um, that you are comfortable with. But this is because you're not comfortable. This is not because they're doing something wrong. I just want to emphasize that. Yeah. Their sexual life. I think this came up actually in a question in 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 uh, during adult as well. But it's it's you know people sexualize it if you kiss somebody on the mouth. It's it, and it seems to be a cultural thing I because not all is. cultures in the world kiss each other on the mouths totally, in a sexual way. Totally, and I think that you know just be aware of that. If you think a kiss on the mouth is something between adults and it's intimate, that's your understanding of a kiss. That is not the context or intention. It's being delivered to this little baby from her grandparents. Also be clear about that, because if you come at this going, hey, that's disgusting and inappropriate. What are you doing? You're making Mm. a strong inference that will absolutely cause tension. I'm going to put it that way. okay? Um, And maybe it's about coming at it with, you know, I realize I'm not comfortable with that. It's okay to say you're not comfortable with something. It's actually really important. It's our preference. That we do butterfly kisses, you know, bring your eye to the little one's cheek and blink up and down. It'll give the effect of a butterfly or the little nose rubbing or that we kiss foreheads or cheeks only or that we kiss hands or fingers. Whatever way you want to do it, you're saying this is what we're comfortable with. And you are her parents. Yeah, You know, you're allowed to do that. Yeah. Uh, Someone says in the same, my wife is Eastern European and they all kiss each other on the lips. It's a bit of a mad sight when you see it first. Uh, Okay, just have a vision in my head of everybody going around Eastern European countries uh, wearing the faces off each other right Um, I'm having awful trouble with my two year old when it comes to nappy changes and I dread every time it has to be done she kicks cries twists and gets herself into a sitting position where I can't get at her and she's so strong I have to wrestle with her and try and pin her down until the job is done which is exhausting and very stressful for both of us I've tried distracting her with various toys etc but as soon as she feels me touch her she kicks off again I'm worried I'll end up unintentionally hurting her when trying to get her into a good position for cleaning her what should I do? I was going to hold off potty training until the new year when she was two and a half or so. But should I just start to avoid these constant battles? No, Mm. no, don't start potty training just because she doesn't like having her nappy changed. That is not 
this, that's not what we look at is your child ready for potty training and what you could end up doing is replacing one battle with another yeah. and the other one will run for even longer because remember at two years old developmentally I see it as my job to push against and test and seek to defy and crash through every boundary and limit you seek to put in place. I think at two, this is my job. I'm finding my no. I want to be independent, yet I'm entirely dependent. And nappy changing is a great example of that. You're doing all the stuff of, hey, look at this, read this book, hold this toy, jingle this. And I'm sure you've exhausted all mm. of that. Like, I just think one of the ways you got to do this is it's going to be like, um, do you know, trying to get through the uh, the tills at Aldi or one of those where you've got to, it's a speed game. You know, you've got to be yes. a step ahead of the jam of <laughs> jar jam. Um, but you want to have everything lined out and ready. So you're going to have the nappy open, the white, a couple of wipes already out of the pack. So you don't have to take your hands off her to reach and fumble for anything. It's all there. Yeah. Then give her something of the process. Maybe give her the wipes or the tub of Vaseline. I'm not going to say Sudacream because we all know that'll go all over her mm. and it really takes ages to clean. Um, but have all of that. Give her a little distraction. But it means that you are literally good to go. Get that nappy on and off as quick as you can. I would also say have a special nappy changing song because you can start singing it leading up to the change. It cues her. Oh, I see what's coming. So it's happening with her, not to her. I'm not saying she'll go high five. <laughs> Been dying for this moment <laughs> together. But it gives her a bit of notice because sometimes there is a sense of powerlessness for children, especially around two, when they're in that kind of, you know, more defiant age and independence seeking that you lie them down and they have to submit to this. And that's yeah. not in their nature. So the song yeah. just lets them know it's coming, involves her in it. Um, as I said, have her hold something like the bag of wipes or, you know, the little bag of bags that you put the nappy in or whatever process you're using. Yeah, she's going to take them all out and you'll have to stuff them back in. But pick your battles. Maybe that's the lesser of them. And play, you know, you could do something like, oh, there's going to be a rocket launch and you pick her up. She's only two. Pick her up and you can do three, two, one, blast off and she can blast up in your arms and land down on the changing mat area or wherever mm. you want her to have. And then you have to say, we have to count down from 20 to get you ready to rocket launch again, 20, 19. And in that you are furiously changing that nappy and by blast <laughs> off you're ready to blast her off the area again but you're making it playful you can you know blow little raspberries onto her belly make noises like that do incy wincy spider do a game of what's that what's that noise and see can you get her really quiet to hear any random noise and whatever she says it's a whatever you go yes it is that's right um, try as best you can to have a, a, cha- a nappy changing schedule but I say that knowing that you know, you can say I really wanted to change you in half an hour, but her bowels have decided it will happen now. Absolutely. So, you know, I just as best you can, some kind of a structure about that so that basically you're not inter interrupting her when she's in the middle of an activity or in the middle of play mm. or getting tired and cranky or getting hungry. Because if you then say, oh, we better change you, I'm already physically dysregulated and that's going to distract me and try to change her in the same place again as best you can with a busy two year old and always thank her for helping you. Thank you for helping me with that. Thank you for lying down. Thank you for going back to our manners. Thank her for it. And she'd be like, gosh, didn't even know I was doing something worthwhile there. (laughs) And probably wasn't. Uh, I've always found if if, if, it depends how big your hands are, but if you're able to get uh, to grip both ankles with one one hand... That really, because that reduces their, literally reduces their wiggle room because yeah. they can only struggle with their shoulders. And, I, if you and I remember using air, pull-ups at the yeah. end because the lying down bit was just not happening. So it was easier to do the step in, step out. But if she's a runner, 
Yeah, that's that's a whole. <laughs> it's a whole. It's a whole workout. It really is. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> but the end is coming because you are one way or another just looking at a few more months of this. Yeah. And she's just asserting her independence, and there, I know it doesn't feel great in those moments, but developmentally, that's really good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Even though it doesn't feel that right, the road. Joanna, thanks a million. Thank As ever, Joanna Fortune, there you are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take our break. Uh, after that, the psychology of pandemics. Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.